Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Let us hear the Word of God as it is written for us in the book of Romans, the 14th chapter, verses 1 to 12. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge? the servant of another. To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord he does not eat, and give thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Help us to be stilled like a weaned child in the arms of his mother. Help us to eat these wonderful words which are sweeter to us than a honeycomb. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Mary Lee and I have been thinking about uh, the conference, and um, one of the things that's very clear is that happiness in marriage and peace and contentment in marriage comes to those who love God's truth. And um, there are so many things that pastors say that seem unremarkable. You know, that marriage is happy and homes are content when we obey God. It just doesn't seem worth saying. It's like, duh, you know. This text here this morning is an example of the contentment and peace that comes when we obey God. And the interesting thing about this text, what the Apostle Paul is writing here, is that he's writing in the interest of contentment and peace. 
The whole purpose of this is to shut down the fighting, to shut down the pride and the judgment, you got that, and to promote what? Well, a little bit before he was promoting loving your neighbor. You remember he said the, the second table of the law. He says, it's all summed up in the command to love your neighbor. So there he was talking about love. Here he's not talking about love. <laughs> he has lowered his expectations, as it were. He's just trying to get us to what? Accept each other. Isn't that interesting? So what would be the difference between love and acceptance? Well, if you love, you will accept. But if you accept, maybe you won't necessarily love. Acceptance is um, something that should be, uh, should be seen as different from love. It is love, but it's different. Now, we can, we can make the mistake of immediately thinking that what's being talked about here is a formal acceptance, like, you know, into membership of a church or being accepted by the elders to come to the Lord's table. That's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about any formal judgment. It's talking about individual judgment, which is not formal. One of the reasons you give such uh, heavy authority to elders um, to be able to make the decision who can be a member and who can't and who can come to the Lord's table and who can't and who can be baptized and who can't, is that those things are very, very heavy themselves. And so you don't ever want an individual to make the decision. You want it to be trusted to a plurality of the eldership. And this is something that makes Presbyterian government superior, I believe. I mean, I'm not going to, like, judge you. But I do love Presbyterian government because it's such a wonderful check on the stupidities of individuals, including me, I might say. Now, we're not talking about formal acceptance of membership or coming to the Lord's table or being baptized. We're talking about something different, and the difference is sincere affection. Acceptance is an openness to the other person. If you accept somebody, the one thing for sure is they know that you accept them. And let me put it another way. If you don't accept somebody, <laughs> they know you don't accept them. It doesn't matter what your mouth says. If they're unacceptable to you, you can blather on as long as you want. And they know their true standing with you, right? The man who we accept is a man who knows and feels the lack of judgment and the lack of condescension. All right? Now, how does somebody who is weak respond to the strong man who is condescending. I mean, you all know what that's like, right? Somebody that every time you're around them, you feel inferior. You know, he may never say nothing, but you know that he looks down on you, right? I mean, isn't this the essence of the battle over racism in America? And it's sort of what, people are trying to get at when they talk about systemic racism. 
you know, that whites as a group categorically look down on blacks as a group without saying anything. They may live next door to them. They may have them in their school. They may even have a daughter who married one. But you can tell that there still is no acceptance, right? 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 And so in our text, the Apostle Paul is trying to get at these things, not trying, but he's getting at these things which can be very hidden but are very real. And he starts speaking to the one who is strong. And we know that because verse 1 says, now accept the one who is weak in faith. So he's addressing the strong, right? Accept the one who is weak in faith. But we're so squirrely. We say, oh, I do. I do accept him. And then he says, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. And we go, (laughs) you got me. You know, we can act like we're real sort of accepting. And inside, we are, we are absolutely censorious. And so he says, accept the one who is weak in faith. And then he warns us off. He says, but don't do it so that you can pass judgment on his opinions. And this is always the case with the strong. They operate from their position of superiority. Listen, if you're strong, use your strength to bore into the psyche of the person who is weak and discover what it is that causes the weakness. But don't do it for the purpose of exposing it. Do it for the purpose of gaining sympathy in yourself. Do it for the purpose of finding them acceptable. Don't you find that it's easier to accept people when you understand what has given them the weaknesses they have, right? Verse 2, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. In other words, he's a vegetarian. Now, we don't know specifically why some in the Roman church were vegetarians, but obviously they didn't eat meat, they were vegetarians. They weren't eating air. And so there are a couple of options. First, it could have been that the ones who were weak were Gentiles, because if you go to the parallel text in 1 Corinthians 8, at the end of the section about those who are strong of consciences and those who have weak consciences, at the very bottom it says, some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. And so we know there was a battle in the church between those who were Gentiles who thought they could go ahead and eat meat sacrificed to idols and those who were Gentiles and Jews, and thought that it was fine to do so. And if you want to understand how they thought that way, read 1 Corinthians 8. So that's one possibility. One possibility is that the people... Hi. I've missed you. One possibility is that the people who were weak, were Gentiles. And notice it says, 
they were accustomed to the idol until now. In other words, these are people who have been drunks for decades, and they get on the wagon. And the minute they get on the wagon, they are absolutely intolerant of any alcohol ever, anywhere. Okay? Nothing like a reformed drunk to hate alcohol. And so these were people who had been sacrificing animals on the altars of idolatry. Until recently, it says until now. And you could understand how they wouldn't want to eat meat that went through the butcher shop when a huge proportion of it had been sacrificed to idols, and that's why it was for sale. And so they're like, no, I'm a vegetarian. Why are you a vegetarian? I'm a vegetarian because I have sacrificed meat to idols, and it's demonic. And I will have no part in it. Now, what are you going to fault them with? You know? Sounds good, doesn't it? But notice that the Apostle Paul says their conscience, their faith, is what? Weak. (laughs) That's weird. Do you realize at the very same time that the Apostle Paul is commanding us to accept those who are vegetarians, he's telling us that they're weak. And what that means is they're wrong. If you'll notice, the Apostle Paul identifies with the strong and not with the weak. They. (laughs) Isn't that weird? How could he know they're wrong, say they're wrong, say they're weak, say their position is a function of them being weak in conscience and faith, and yet tell us to accept them? I mean, the Apostle Paul agrees with me, right? How does that work? In other words, I want it to be very clear the Apostle Paul is not failing to make a judgment about the situation. It's very clear in both places. One's weak, the other's strong. But the Apostle Paul does not want the weak brother to violate his conscience. The Apostle Paul doesn't want us to jump all over him and explain to him that he doesn't need to be weak. He can be strong like I am. I mean, if anybody could have done that, the Apostle Paul could have. Why would he give in? They're weak. You said it yourself. They're weak. No, no. He says, accept him. Don't make him violate his conscience. If his conscience is bound on this issue, leave him to his own conscience. What we need is all of us to be convinced about our convictions. And so one of them could have been the Gentile who had recently come out of idolatry. He'd sacrificed meat to idols and he wanted no part in it. The other could have been the Jew. It could have been that it was the Jew who had been raised in a household that observed the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And so to him, it was natural for him to continue to observe the same stipulations about what was clean and what was unclean. In other words, it could have been an issue of Jews condemning anyone who ate what wasn't kosher. And so it would have been almost impossible to ascertain whether or not the meat had been kept properly, whether it was for the proper animal, whether or not it had been cooked properly, on and on and on. And so the Jew just deals with it by saying, no, I'm a vegetarian, all right? Both of those are entirely possible. It could have been the Jew who was weak. 
Now, I know that seems far-fetched, right? You'd much rather take the one about meat sacrifice to idols, right? It's interesting that Calvin says it's the second. He says it was the Jews who were weak. He says they were weak because they had not yet had the faith to realize that the law had been abrogated. Okay, that's the word he uses. And so don't get all cocky about who's the weak and who's the strong and what the situation was. The Apostle Paul very kindly doesn't give it to us. It could have been the Gentiles. It could have been the Jews. Regardless, some were vegetarians because of weak consciences. Now, let me explain how, uh, how perverse you are by talking about how perverse I am, all right? I have had it up to here with people who think nothing of the billions of babies that we have slaughtered in their mother's wombs and yet claim to be higher moral individuals because they will not break the egg of a bald eagle. You with me? All the headlines, all the stories, all... My dog is... Oh, if I... Oh. Oh, my goodness. The filthy morality of pagans. It's filthy. I have a rescued dog. Oh, do you really? Well, I'm impressed. It's so disgusting. Why don't you rescue a baby? You know that that's what the early church fathers actually wrote. They actually wrote, how dare you as Christians go out of your way spending your money on your dogs while there are babies on the hillside behind your house that you won't lift a finger to help. You realize this. There's nothing new about us, <laughs> you know. We just repeat the same mistakes. I've had it up to here with people who talk about carbon, who talk about First it was global warming, then it was global cooling, and now it's climate change, and now it's radical weather or perverse weather or whatever they're calling it today. All the terminology keeps changing, you know. <laughs> Stop it. And you know that I was one of these disgusting creatures. When I was a young man, I mean, I was just filled with self-righteousness about nuclear energy and nuclear weapons, and, and I drove a diesel route, which at the time was the most environmentally aware car that you could own. And I've had a Prius. And it's not because I'm gay. You all, you all know that Taylor, for a while, drove this monster SUV, you know, and it was a Lexus, you know, and he had a bumper sticker, and he said, I identify as a Prius, <laughs> <You know? laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. He's my youngest. I've had it up to here with all the parading of righteousness that flips God's order of creation upside down, and it makes man serve nature instead of nature serving man. This is rebellion against God. Peter Singer is a fool because he denies God. Not because I say he is, 
but because he denies God. So he talks about speciesism. So he's got everybody on their heels trying to justify the fact that they like to have a fire in the fireplace. You know? People who eat meat. People who don't keep track of whether it's free-range or or antibiotic-free or something, eggs they eat. I mean, it's endless, the moral the moralism of people who kill unborn children. Come on, people, this isn't a political statement. Every time you read about a kitty in a tree that's rescued on the front page of Google News, think, could there ever be, ever a headline about an unborn child who's rescued because her mother repents before she does the dirty deed? You have to think about this all the time if you're not going to go insane today. I've had it up to here with the moral posturing of Christians. And so we are just just like them. We're just like them. You know, we rescue dogs. We tell each other we have a rescued dog. We don't eat meat. And so I've had it with D. Wayne. I've had it. I've had it. And you say, oh, come on. Come on, don't name names. Well, I mean, if you're going to talk about vegetarians in this church, you're going to talk about Dwayne, Right? I mean, he's such a hypocrite. Recently, on my back deck, there must have been 30 pounds of turkey. Marinated turkey. And he had a grill and another grill next to it filled with turkey. And the dude says he's a vegetarian. And he's cooking meat. And that's typical of the hypocrisy of vegetarians. <laughs> you know, how many times you've gone to a restaurant, you've asked them to recommend something, and they say, oh, <laughs> I don't eat meat. I'm a vegetarian. But they'll bring it to you. Now, I tell you the truth, when D. Wayne, and by the way, you remember D. Wayne's a good hunter. You remember he stole Lawrence's trophy buck the first year he was bow hunting. You remember, some of you remember this, right? Okay. And this dude claims to be a vegetarian. And I have to tell you, in, deep in my heart, I haven't let him know this, but deep in my heart, I've resented him. Because I've had it up to here. And you say, well, yeah, but come on, Tim. He doesn't eat meat because he has a weak constitution, not conscience. I know he says that. They all say it. You know, if you ever talk to a Christian who's vegetarian, it's not because of principles. It's just preference, right? And this is what D. Wayne says to me. And honestly, it still makes my stomach tight. I just don't know if we can trust D. Wayne <laughs> to be a vegetarian. Now, I take a vote on it right now, but it requires a two-week notice in a congregational <laughs> meeting to take a vote on it, you know. Now, listen, I'm, I'm sort of kind of joking, but would any of you admit to being like me? 
that the first time Dwayne told you he'd stopped eating meat, a little something inside you just kind of went. Another one bites the dust, <laughs> you know. Oh no, Dwayne! I thought he was a blood brother, you know. He's a traitor. He's gone to the dark side. Now, I make jokes about this because it is true that when he first told me, I actually was inside a little bent out of shape. Why? Well, because we all know how easy it is to let the world press us into its mold. And if there's somebody that I want standing with me as I try to resist that pressure, it's Dwayne. Marcy. You know, I mean, it would be an encouragement to me for you not to do it, you know. But, but Dwayne! Oh, my man! I need Dwayne! Because if he goes off, nobody's safe. This is very different from what was going on in the church in Rome. It wasn't environmentalism. It wasn't flipping God's creation order upside down. It was avoiding idolatry, meat sacrifice to idols, and it was avoiding non-kosher food. We don't know which. It was one or the other. I want to make a point here. This text must not be used to provide cover for people who stop eating meat because they want to be seen as more environmentally conscious. That's sin. It is an act of rebellion against God to not eat meat because you are parading your compassion, even if it's only in your own heart. God has explicitly commanded us to eat meat. And Dwayne is not breaking that command by eating no meat in order to protect his blood pressure. That's why he does it. It's not a violation of the command. He's in favor of eating meat. He just can't do it. We must not use this text to provide cover for people who are flipping the creation order upside down, as Peter Singer is, in arguing against killing animals because it's speciesism. God is the author of speciesism. Because God created man as the crown of his creation, and he gave all of nature to man alone to rule, to govern, to subordinate to himself. That's what it says in Scripture. Now, if I were a pagan at this point, I'd say, yeah, yeah. So in other words, the rape of the land of the West is good. That's what Peter Singer says, I say. You read him, the man is dishonest rhetorically from top to bottom. He, he, everything he argues against is a straw man. This is foolish and dishonest. You ought to be able to recognize yourself when a guy's arguing with you. But I don't. 
God has set man as the crown of creation. And then God said this to Noah. God said to Noah, right after the flood, after they get out of the ark, he said to him, God blessed him and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Do not go along with pagans who are killing billions of babies, and so they have to come up with a bunch of little petty laws that make them feel religious and moral. That's all environmentalism is. Christians have never been in favor of raping the land. Never! You say, well, the land's raped. Look at Gary, Indiana. And I say, yes, because Christians have failed to govern the earth in a just way. And now the church is polluted. And we're the environmentalists. The law courts are polluted. We're the environmentalists. Sexuality has been eviscerated of any content. We're all the biodiversity people. Come on. Don't be intimidated by moralistic pagans who slaughter their unborn children. Awake, you sleeper. We are not dealing with any divisions between the vegetarians and the carnivores. There is nothing weak or strong in veganism. There is only rebellion against God in veganism, and God's people are to have nothing to do with it, even in Germany. We are to condemn those who claim morals that deny God's very commands. Such people do not live on a higher plane. They live on an infinitely lower plane of rebellion against God. And their place is the bottomless pit. Don't ever forget that. Why are we not to reject the one who is weak of faith and doesn't eat meat? Verse 3, for God has accepted him. Is that good enough for us? (laughs) Even if we don't find him acceptable, God has accepted him. And you're going to see this constantly in the church where people that don't have your opinions, that don't stand at the same place you stand on Adia 4 or things, uh, you're going to see that they're different. They may have a different social class, different education, different convictions politically. There are all kinds of ways we differ from each other. But God has accepted them. And I, you know, I often think, what is it about, you know how you go into a store and you see the cashier and you watch them just for a split second, you know they're a Christian. You ever notice this? I've noticed it 
in other places in the world. What is it about a Christian? And what I think it is, is that everyone who is a Christian has gone to ground under the cross. You know? And what are you going to do after you go to ground under the cross? Get up and be proud? I mean, it is possible. But I mean, it is difficult. And don't we recognize each other because of humility? And what is that humility based on? But it's based on the fact that we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and immediately we think God has accepted them. God has accepted them. And so what are we going to (laughs) do? You know, we're going to find them unacceptable just to keep God honest. You know, God's mercy sometimes gets away from him. And some of us who are women and very frugal sometimes are not quite comfortable with the wideness of God's mercy. Looks like it's put on a little bit too much weight for my taste. No, God's accepted them. Knock your socks off. (laughs) You know, knock your socks off. We don't determine who is acceptable. God determines who is acceptable. And he has accepted the men on both sides of this argument, as well as their wives. And I don't know about you, but I have a sneaking suspicion that maybe the women were more behind this division than the men were. Because I notice often the men are stooges for their wives. I don't know if you've ever seen marriages like that, but... You know, my first elders meeting here in town, the elders made a decision. I wasn't involved at this point. This is my first elders meeting. I got home and I got a phone call from the elder, one of the older elders. And he said to me, And I said, well, if you remember in the meeting, so-and-so addressed that issue. What? Uh, Yeah, he said such and such. Okay, just a second, just a second. Oh, yeah, Tim. Well, what was I dealing with? His wife. You know, it wasn't his concern. He'd had time in the meeting to address his concern, you know. Doesn't mean a man shouldn't go home and talk to his wife and listen to her about the stupidity of the elders. But I wonder how often divisions of this nature aren't a function of women holding up the morals of the universe. You know, so men, don't be a, don't be a placeholder for your wife. Who are you to judge the servant of a mother? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. I just want to make a, a comment here that when... Our translations translated as servant and master. We have no clue. Absolutely no clue. We don't feel the weight of it. It doesn't intimidate us. We don't go into subservience the way we should. What's being said is Jesus is the master and he owns judgment. Okay? He owns it. And so if you take over judgment, like it says in James, you're stealing 
from your owner. All right? Don't have aristocrat upstairs, downstairs thoughts about the language of servant and master in Scripture. No, 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 no. This is not Downton Abbey. Okay? This is serious business. And what you're being told is when you take over the judgment, he stands and falls according to his master. Don't you usurp the authority of his master to find him acceptable. All right. Then we get to the second issue. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So what would it be to regard one day above another? Well, again, this is hit in Scripture and other places. In Colossians, for instance, we read this. Mm. It says, therefore, 2 verses 16 and 17, Colossians. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So this is the second area of conflict. And in Colossians, it explicitly says a Sabbath day. Now, I'm going to do this very quickly. (laughs) But I want to give you just a little bit of a rundown on this battle in the church. Because it's still a battle today. You can roughly break Protestantism down into... I mean, I know you're going to want to argue with me about this, but... Baptist, Reformed, and Lutheran. Now, just don't, just, just go with me, all right? Lutherans, let's leave them alone, all right? Baptists sometimes are Reformed. Reformed are, are not Baptists unless they live in the South. And then they might have to go to a Baptist church, Okay? a lot of cross-pollination between Southern Baptist churches and PCA churches. Historically, if you take the reform part of Christianity and you break it down into halves, you have continental reformed and you have English reformed. And you know what you're dealing with? I mean, there's a number of ways I could say it. One of the ways is if you're not Dutch, you're not much. All right? So basically, Dutch are the continental reformed, and they have the three standards of unity, right? The Heidelberg, the Belgic, and the canons of Dort, right? Did I get that right? Are they called canons? Okay. That's their authority constitutionally, confessionally. Presbyterians have what? English. The Westminster Standards. The Westminster Standards... And the three forms of unity, the English and the Continental, are at different places on the Sabbath. All right? That's why I'm telling you all this. And, are you ready for this? Now, some of you will disagree with me on this, but I'm standing firm. Calvin and Luther are at different places than the Westminster Standards on the Sabbath. Okay. Um... The issue has to do with how much of 
the Sabbath day commandment is ceremonial and how much of it is moral. The English reform will say it's part of God's uh, universal, unending moral law because it says that God himself rested, and it says in Hebrews, there yet remains a Sabbath day. All right? You all with me still? Okay. The Continental will say, yes, but look at Jesus' handling of the Sabbath. Look at his command that uh, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. You all remember that. And then they'll point to Calvin and Luther who, and, and I've, I've researched this and some, some probably Stephen are going to say I'm wrong on this, but nevertheless, when you read Calvin and Luther, it's very clear that they don't say things that are in strict conformity with Westminster Standards. Now, they couldn't really because they came before the Westminster Standards, right? I grew up in a home where we never, ever, 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 ever patronized a business on the Lord's Day. All right? Mary Lee grew up in a home that was the same. Except that as we got older, my dad would stop and get a gallon of milk. <laughs> you know, I always thought that was interesting. But one time... The vice president of Moody Bible Institute's daughter asked me to go to a Peter, Paul, and Mary concert on Sunday. It was like a, a whatchamajiggy date, you know. She asked me. So I asked my dad, and he said, no, it's Sunday. You're not going to a concert on Sunday. We had an interesting conversation with the Linton girls this last week. Heather was, she says, the only person at Taylor University who didn't study on Sunday. I wish every Asian that ever came to this church had been a Sabbatarian. Because Asians never stop studying. You may be able to get them to come to worship, but not small group. <laughs> and it's been so sad to watch them lose so much of the life of the church because they use Sunday to study. The Lynn girls don't study at Hillsdale, but they say they don't know anybody else that doesn't study. Okay, y'all up to date now. Continental Reform tends to be a little looser on the Sabbath than English Reformed. Luther and Calvin, if you really press them, my judgment is what they say is, well, part of it is ceremonial, the law, and yet it is appropriate for the church to set aside one day a week, given over to rest and to worship. You with me? That's what I believe Calvin and Luther say. And so that day is called what? The Lord's Day. Because the Lord's Day is the first day of the week because that's when he rose from the dead. All right? So that complicates it a little more. Okay, so we say no to the Sabbath, but what about the Lord's Day, you know? And what about worship? And our worship is the same day every week, and shouldn't we honor that day? All right, now, clearly that is involved in what was dividing the church over holy days, because it says Sabbath. From the beginning, this church has made a decision it will not divide over arguments about Sabbath days you will find a great diversity of practice in this church. Don't judge each other. Don't judge each other. One more thing and I'll move on. When I first came into the ministry, um, I came to churches, one of which was just 
completely decadent spiritually. The other was alive. But what I noticed was the children of the church who were in high school were having to work on Sundays. And I realized that if I went to a fast food restaurant on Sundays, I was part of the reason they couldn't go to worship. And so I just want you to be very careful as you take your conscience before the Lord. The one thing you must guard is that it is your own conscience. That's what it says here, right? It says this. Uh, Just a second. Every person, each person, must be fully convinced in his wife's mind. That's not what it says. It says in his own mind. And so be fully convinced in your own mind. And do not come under the intimidation and the indoctrination and the oppression of other believers on this. Okay? He moves on and he says, verse 6, He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. This is why we pray over our food. Okay? We pray in good conscience. Can you imagine praying over food that you were convinced was sinful? No, your conscience is visible by you giving thanks for what you're about to eat. And then it says, for not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Listen to this from Calvin. He says, thus too we are taught the rule by which to live and die. So that if he, speaking of God, lengthens our life in the midst of continual sorrow and weariness, we are not to seek to depart before our time. But if he should suddenly recall us in the prime of our life, we must always be ready for our departure. Isn't that beautiful? It is a huge temptation today among Christians to depart before their time. Huge. I don't know what percent to put on it, but I know all through my work in the ministry, I have constantly been having to deal with people who either their relatives were trying to kill them or they were trying to kill themselves. Especially the elderly. All Governor Lamb was doing was expressing the unexpressed opinion of all of us who are young. We have no honor for the aged. We don't look at gray hair and honor it at all. We are so conceited about our youth. When I was young, I read this uh, quote, and it said, you know, the, the tragedy of... Uh, I can't remember how it goes. The tragedy of youth is that it won't listen to age. And the tragedy of age is that when it finally gets wisdom, youth won't listen to it. (laughs) You know? It's like there's no good age because you're either stupid young or dismissed old. 
you know? Those of our loved ones who have had strokes, who are incontinent, who are fat, who have diabetes, who have phantom pain, need I go on. They're precious to us. And it's our job to help them not take death out of God's hands. And they won't take death out of God's hands if we love and cherish them. And that's hard work because you're already bathing them and now you have to convince them to continue to live. Right? Do it. Life and death belong to God. And when God takes you in the prime of life, hey, Adam, mm, 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 do not think that you know better than God when he should be taken. It seems like a waste, but I can tell you as Adam's pastor and friend that I don't think his death actually was a waste. <laughs> because I've been in, in the catbird seat watching the effect of it on so many of you who would have been even a lazier, no-good-nothing slob than you are now. I mean, if he hadn't died, do you know how much worse you'd be? Now, I know that sounds awful to say, but do you realize the maturity, spiritually, that has come to many of you because of Adam's death? I have seen it. Every pastor has seen it. Do not take life and death out of God's hands. I had a friend who was a pastor who blew his head off down in uh, whatchamacallit, that wilderness south of Lexington in Kentucky. What's it called? I can't hear you. Well, it's, uh, it has a name that I'm more familiar with. Yeah, yeah, Red River. Is that what it's called? Yeah, the gorge, yeah. And, you know, he had difficulties. But we do not kill ourselves. That is God's prerogative. I know it sounds weird, but God has the power of life and death. And when a civil magistrate does it, he does it at God's command. God gave him the sword. Not one of us lives for himself, not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Now you realize this means that Jesus is Lord of the dead. Present tense, he is Lord of the dead. And that means the dead are living. Adam is alive. Charlie is alive. Joe is alive. And... Bob, he'd be fully alive. <laughs> you know, I mean, how many of us have not had fantasies about seeing Bob in heaven? You know, the sense of humor, maybe they don't have humor in heaven, but... I am certain there is not opera. 
I'm certain of that. <laughs> All right, now, let's draw it to a conclusion. First, a caution. This and the text in Corinthians are often used to cover up wicked sin in the church. There is a saying that is abused constantly by churches and denominations and Christian organizations and missions today. And the phrase is, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, in all things charity. It's a good statement. The problem is the definition of essentials and non-essentials is completely perverse today. People use it to cover over rebellion, and they say, well, it's a non-essential. Where do we do that as a church today? We do it with sexuality. In spades. (laughs) Now follow me here. In the Garden of Eden, prior to the fall, before sin, In the state of perfection, God created Adam first and then Eve. In the Garden of Eden, prior to the fall, God made Eve to be Adam's helper. In the Garden of Eden, prior to the fall, God made man his own glory, and he made woman the glory of man. I'm just quoting scripture. And yet Christians today have reduced the distinction in the creation order of Adam first and Eve to be simply this. I mean, honestly, this is all that's left of it in the church today. Sunday morning, people want a man. That's it. And only, (laughs) only during the sermon, (laughs) you know, not even during worship. This is rebellion against God. Rebellion. Scripture is completely simple, elegant, and clear. There's no question what God did and intended. And so when we go through life saying in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty, and we include in liberty whether a woman is the boss and wears the pants in the home, That's rebellion. I judge you. I condemn you by the word of God. Now you say, well, now wait a second. You know, these are things that people of sincere conscience disagree over. And I say, no, they don't have a sincere conscience. You see, how could you do that? You know, there are lots of good Christians who disagree with you. I say, no, they're not good Christians. And you say, you really are an egomaniac. And I say, no, if I were an egomaniac, I'd just be like Wayne Grudem and everybody else that says it's fine. The way that you build your pride today is to go along with that. (laughs) It's the humble man who submits to Scripture. Isn't that a mark of humility? To submit, even though it's unpopular. You say, well, no, no, we agree in the home and the church. I say, well, what about the world? Is it acceptable to have a woman prime minister of Germany? 
Is it acceptable to have the Iron Lady, Margaret Thatcher, leading the United Kingdom? And I say, well, I kind of liked her. (laughs) And the New York Times hated her, so I guess on one level it's good. But on the other level, it is to the shame, just like Deborah. And am I not supposed to say that? It shamed all the softies, all the effeminate, all the Malakoy of England. And the New York Times testified to the inappropriateness of it by their opprobrium heaped on her and calling her the Iron Lady. I mean, think about it. It was them dissing her. You realize that. The world doesn't have any confusion about what God created and why and how. The world knows that it is rebelling. I mean, you guys, you read, oh, the irony of Jean Parle, Sartre's wife, writing the second sex. You want to know what she's opposed to? She'll just quote scripture. That's what she's opposed to, all right? And so listen, do not be a minimalist and think that because you want a pastor preaching from the pulpit who is a man, and you want your elders men, and you want a man to act at least as if he wears the pants at home, that you have been obedient to God. You haven't begun to be obedient to God. Nope, nope, nope. You haven't begun to be obedient to God until you love your wife and give her as many children as she wants. And you see, wait, wait, wait. I thought we were talking about authority. Well, yeah, back at the beginning, before the fall, he commanded them, be fruitful and multiply. (laughs) You know? Oh, no. Are we going to talk about creation again? Yeah. Because everything he commanded at the very beginning is binding on all men across all history. Okay? And he said, be fruitful and multiply. He repeated it and repeated it. As a matter of fact, he said, fill the earth. And you say, well, we done been filled. And I say, no, you can take everybody in the world and put them in Texas, and they have, what, a quarter of an acre? What is it, a quarter, a half? I forget, it's like... And have you seen how the Asians at Archer Glenn use... The space of this piano times two. Have you seen the food Asians grow at Orchard Glen? In a space of this. You know, and we just are falling all over ourselves trying to act as if we're creation keepers. And that's why we don't have children. And he said, fill the earth. And I've lived long enough to see that the greatest natural resource of the earth is the mind of man. I've lived from the time when they said there would be riots over food to the time when both India and China became self-sufficient in producing food. Come on. God said man and woman, not man and man, not woman and woman. In the garden... Prior to, create, prior to the fall, prior to sin in the state of perfection. This is not subject to non-essentials being a matter that we should protect unity over. 
Do you see how we pervert these texts so that they cover rebellion? The church is filled with people who refuse to have a fruitful marriage bed, who refuse to honor the authority of manhood, and who refuse to honor the distinction between male and female. The church is in abject rebellion. The most conservative churches are in rebellion over these things. Snip, snip, snip. It's truth. It's not a vasectomy. Don't do it. You may not cower in front of the demonic forces of this present age and call that accepting those that Jesus has accepted. You may not do it. Verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, you know, the Apostle Paul likes to come back and say things twice. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So what is the end of it all? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. The final application of this text is that if you come to me or to Mary Lee or to Jody and to Jenna and to all the pastors and all the elders and all the older women of this church and you tell us that you had a father who was a bastard... And that's a kind word. If you tell us that your mother never stops manipulating you, and there's a word for that that goes with the other one, alliteration-wise, that I won't use. And you use that as an excuse for faithlessness, for bitterness, for resentment, for anger you will find us very sympathetic. You will find our hearts are in your hand. You will see our tears often. But we will not excuse your sin. And the reason is that every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of God. And when we stand before God, the fact that our Father or our mother abused us, will not excuse us one iota for being bitter, for being fruitless, for being loveless, for being censorious, whatever it is that is our besetting sin. We're going to stand before God. And when you stand before God, if you have one of these soft pastors who just lives to placate you, guess what? When you stand before God, he will not be standing next to you. He won't be there. And neither will your wife. You say, well, my wife made me do it. Your wife won't be next to you. Because in heaven, there's neither marrying nor the giving in marriage you will stand alone.
And if you think sometimes your pastors and elders and the older women of this church are too severe with you, you remember that it's attendant to the sheep to forget the judgment. And it is the obligation of your shepherds to remind you of it. Yes, we're about to sing a hymn that gives us joy at the thought of standing before God dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. (laughs) But that's not the only thing that will go on there. Christians will be judged by God, and every deed and every idle word will come into the light. It will be under the blood of Christ, but it will be noted. All right, let's pray. Our Father God, we pray that we will live in the freedom of the blood of Christ and in light of the judgment seat of our Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.